Hello, dear friends. Greg Kokel here, back from the Northwoods in Wisconsin. The last couple of weeks, I was uh, on a break of sorts. Um, I actually don't ever take vacations. I figured this out. Told my brother this. He asked me about it. He was with me up there in Wisconsin, and uh, usually have a couple of weeks in uh, May, and then in June, July, we have a few more weeks with the family. And when I'm up there early, I can get things in order. And it's a good thing we were there early because there were a lot of things to get in order this time around. But I told Dave, I said, you know, Dave, I don't ever really take a vacation. I just learn to work in different locations. So when I go to Wisconsin and our place up there, which is a beautiful place and getting better because we're always fixing it up and, and, uh, getting improvements and getting it where it really is most enjoyable. Let's put it that way. Last few years, we've been overhauling quite a few things. But anyway, I that's where I wrote the story of reality, you know, and uh, that's where I did a lot of work on tactics. And, you know, I just go up there and I plan to go fishing and I just put the boat away and I get to work because that's what's important. That has to be done. So I did get a, a bit of work done when I was up there on business stuff. And then when I go up in a few weeks with my family, I'll, I'll be writing a lot because I got a book deadline. Uh, my third one, I keep getting extensions, and uh, now this is July 31st, so uh, looking to do that. I got a story to tell you about that trip, though, um, but a couple of things first, and that is, one, thanks to Jay Warner Wallace and, and Robbie Lashua filling in for me the last two weeks. I uh, appreciate their pinch hitting, and it's always great to know I got a deep bench to, to go to when I'm not going to be around um, to do the broadcasts, and I, and I trust you enjoyed them, so my thanks to my buddies there. Uh, second thing is, the, just a quick announcement, two items, that next year's Reality Student Apologetics Conference um, theme has already been decided. It's called Seek and You Will Find, and the emphasis is going to be on deconstruction and deconversion. There's a whole lot of challenge now to young Christians especially to um, to pursue a deconstruction of your point of view, your spiritual point of view. In other words, take every little piece and break it down and in their mind, those who are encouraging this, show it to be false. Here's why it's stupid, and then you deconvert. And that's the general idea. Um, we don't think that when you look closely at the facts that it turns out to be stupid at all. And so we're going to spend our next conference starting in September in Southern California and then going the six locations like we did last year. Um, we don't think we're going to, we're going to spend that time teaching the young people, showing them where these particular challenges do not work against Christianity, the ones that progressive types are making against Christianity and either deconverting or going to progressive Christianity, which is not Christianity at all. I, I, I wish they would just find a different name for it because it isn't. It's just, you know, uh, liberal theology under a new name. That's all it is. Nothing new there. Okay, uh, so that's coming up. You want more details? Uh, Reality, let's see, uh, I'm looking for the website here. I think it's uh, realityapologetics.com. That's it. I know this. I don't have to read it. Realityapologetics.com. And also, you know, if you visit our social media, keep an eye on that. You're going to get a sneak peek at what the guys have been up to in preparation for the session. So you may just see Tim and Alan getting 
facial or whatever they do. So just keep your eyes open for that kind of thing. The other little announcement is that next Wednesday, that would be June 8th, uh, Wednesday, June 8th, John Noyce will be live on his uh, monthly podcast, To The Point. It'll be live on Facebook. It'll be live on Twitter. And how do you do a face? How do you do a podcast on Twitter? I don't know. That's what it says here in my announcements. And anyway, it'll be on YouTube also, 12 p.m., June 8th, Pacific Time. All right? You can go, go to str.org, scroll down to the bottom for links to that and all our other social media platforms. So that's available to you. Now, <clears throat> um, as it stands right now, we have not heard from SCOTUS on their official decision about Roe v. Wade. That will probably come out when I'm gone. Now I think about it because I'll, I'll be gone leaving on the 11th or the 12th of June to be with my family in northern Wisconsin. Oh, wait a minute. I'm jumping ahead of myself. I told you I had a story about that. So let me just back up a minute. I do have a sovereignty of God story about what happened uh, actually uh, this last weekend uh, in Wisconsin. Now, what when you're not living in a place for most of the year and it gets really cold, um, things go south, all right? And vehicles that are sitting all winter long, they go south too. And so we had our my Tahoe, which has 300,000 miles on but still runs great. That went south on us. I had to take it in, drop it off at the, uh, at the shop. And for the two weeks I was up there, I didn't get to drive that. We have a secondary vehicle, which is like an S10 type um, SUV, like an old Blazer style. It's a, actually a Bravada, an Oldsmobile. But, you know, it's one of those smaller ones. And uh, that's the car my wife drives. But that was the trailer. That was the vehicle that we used to trailer our boat and get around while Dave and I were up there the last two weeks. And on Saturday night, and we've had that for about 12 or 14 years, okay? And we don't use it much, but we bought it used. And uh, on Saturday night, we were going out to meet a guy who's a stonemason guy who's going to do some stonework on the beautiful stonework on the inside of our, our cabin. And, uh, 6.30 Saturday night, we're out in the woods. That's where our place is, you know. It's like uh, 15 miles from town. And there's a flat tire. Hey, you got a flat. We're just about to leave for this meeting. We got a flat. My brother saw it. And that's not a good idea. That's not good, obviously, because now you're out in the woods. You can't call AAA, so that means you got to do it the old-fashioned way. And Dave uh, opens up the back, gets the jack out. We never used it. We never even brought the jack out. And this is the kind where you stick the jack, uh, make that, you stick the uh, crowbar kind of into a, a little opening. You, actually, you got a crank thing, and then you crank it. And the cranking lowers the tire that's underneath the carriage of the, of the back end of the, the car. It's all hidden there, and then it lowers it, and then you could disconnect it and pull it out. And uh, <clears throat> once you fix the flat, you can put the, 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 the spare back in there, and you're back in business. Well, he went under there. He went to crank it up. It wouldn't move. It was rusted solid. He drops down, Dave, my brother. He's four years younger than me. So what, he's 68. Actually, he'll be 68 in July. So he drops down, goes right under the car, and he looks around, and that whole mechanism that drops the tire is completely immobile and rusted. All I hear from Dave is, get me a cold chisel and a hammer. Now, Cole's chisel is a chisel you use for rock work, right? So I went in, got the cold chisel and the hammer, and bang, 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 and then 
I hear the boom, the tire comes down, and what he had to do was actually bust the mechanism that was holding the tire up. And, of course, when it's not holding the tire up, it just drops down, and it dropped right on top of him, but he ends up pulling it out. Now we got our spare tire out. We're not going to be able to put it back there. We know that because it's all broken uh, because it was all rusted out. So we quickly change the tire, and off we go. Now I'm thinking, and he's telling me, we don't know how good this tire is, because that has never been out from underneath the car ever before, all right? And uh, we don't know how long it's going to last or whatever. It's been up there for years and years and years. Fortunately, it's still air in it. We were able to get to my buddy's place, the stonemason guy. We did our work. We came back, and uh, Dave was telling me, hey, keep your hands on the steering wheel, because if that tire goes, you're going to go right in the ditch. All right, front right. That's the dangerous ones. Actually, it's more dangerous on the left because you could pull, get pulled into traffic. But in any event, um, so then I realized we got old tires. It would be best for me just to go and get new tires because now we're, dri- we're, we're driving without a spare. We got a flat tire in the back of the truck now. Okay, so I got to get a new tire. Might as well get them all. Where am I going to do that? Saturday night, Memorial Day weekend in the North Woods, in small town, nobody's open anywhere except the Super Walmart. That's 45 minutes south at Rhinelander, where we fly into. So I, I checked online. Yes, the auto service is available. I got out there early in the morning, and sure enough, they were open. They got a line of people waiting for tires, and they don't have the tires that I need. The cheap ones, the $80 ones, they only have three, not four. I need four. Well, what about Wausau? He he calls into Wausau. Yeah, they got four tires. They label them for me. They're they're free, to, or rather, they're open for an appointment. I set it up, and I drive another hour south to get it taken care of. Got it on. All this to say, once I got the new tires on, I told him, take any of the other old tires, and we'll use the best one, and we'll use it as a spare. But I don't want the old spare because I don't know what's good. When they're all done, that old spare is in the back of my car. I say, hey, what's up? I didn't want this one. They said, when we took the tires off the rims to put new tires on, every single one of the tires shredded. They split right down the middle when we took them off. In other words, my wife has been driving on a time bomb and all four wheels. And fortunately, in our driveway that Saturday night, The thing that we thought was a headache, and it was a headache, the tire going flat, which forced us to fix it, and then, oh, we better get new tires. That is the thing that stimulated the impulse to get the new tires, which we found out were absolutely necessary because every one of those other tires was about to go. So now I got new tires all the way around, and I was thanking God for the flat tire. Now, there's a lesson here because there's all kinds of things that go south in our lives, and it's hard to rejoice over them uh, because we don't see how God has ordained some hardship in our life to produce some good in our life or somebody else's life. And maybe it's not tomorrow or next week. Maybe it's years down the line. But virtually every one of you who has walked with the Lord for very long can look down the line at your own lives and seen things that went south that you got bugged at God about, and then later you realized that was a blessing in disguise. <clears throat> and that was what happened on Saturday night with our flat tire. Didn't seem like a blessing at the time, and then we had to bust that 
<clears throat> bust that spare tire holder. So we got to figure out some way to carry the spare tire now. Probably get one of those little bitty donut spare tires because I got to buy another tire. Get one of those little ones that suffice for getting you around until you get a, a flat fixed and then get a cover for that and strap it on the top of the vehicle. Then at least we'll have the cargo area available. But I, I had to say, God, I'm going to give you credit for this. Uh, and thank you for protecting us by allowing this hardship to come in our life that alerted us to a problem that we fixed so my family would be able to drive safely, not just this summer, but many summers. I had never in all those years ever done anything with the tires. Turned out they were 16 years old. I saw some old records about it. Um, and uh, no, you're not supposed to keep any tire that long, even if it's not flat, even if it's not bald. They just wear out and they become dangerous. So that was one of the number of adventures we had. The water heater elements went out. And fortunately, when they went out six years ago, I bought some extra ones and I had it in the shed along with the device that takes that off. And so Dave emptied the water heater uh, and put the new devices in and filled it up. And it didn't take very long. So we had hot water again. Another little thing that uh, that happened. But anyway, that was one of my cocal adventures uh, in Wisconsin. And uh, I wanted to offer that as kind of a, you know, a lesson, a spiritual lesson, in case you're facing something really unpleasant, awkward and inconvenient. It just may be may turn out to be a blessing, uh, a blessing in disguise. So now back to what I launched out on a few moments ago, and that was uh, talking about SCOTUS has not weighed in yet officially about their Roe v. Wade decision, although it looks like we got a glimpse from Alito's draft a couple of months ago when Politico uh, leaked it illegally and caused all kinds of problems. And there has been lots of um, hostile reaction to what appears to be a turnaround with regards to Roe versus Wade, which, uh, in my view, obviously is really good. Um, it's actually, it's, well, we'll talk about slavery in a minute, but as bad as slavery was, it, it doesn't hold a candle to what has happened in, in, as a result of Roe v. Wade 40, almost 48 years ago. It doesn't hold a candle to it. And maybe I'll talk in, in, a little bit later in the show about comparison, but oh, I'll just say it right now. Uh, there were 300,000 African slaves in America, what we now call the United States, which was just the colonies and southern states, etc. 300,000. There were more in the, in the East Indies, but only 300,000. Oh, that's when I say only, I think, that isn't to diminish the anguish. It's to put it in perspective, because three hundred thousand is uh, is actually less than the number of babies who are aborted in six months in the United States of America, and it's probably closer to three months. But I'm just trying to be not to exaggerate. Three hundred thousand in six months, times two is one year times 48 years under Roe v. Wade. And those aren't babies that are enslaved. Those are babies that are killed. So just to put it all in perspective, there are people that are sanguine about abortion 
even Christians. And uh, they don't think of it in comparison to slavery, which is a, a drop in the bucket compared to the evil of abortion. Just doing the numbers, all right? Now, with that in mind, I mean, even so, it's good that Roe v. Wade is at least going to be pushed to the states because about half the states will not allow abortion. And this is making a lot of people angry, and it's made a lot of people violent, too. And when this becomes official, if it does, then there's going to be a lot more violence in the streets because this is the way the left responds when they don't get their way. Historically, it's always been the case. But uh, there are also uh, tweets and, and memes and all kinds of things being flooding um, the social media market. And uh, Tim Barnett sent me one a couple of weeks ago, and all, all he said there was, you can't make this up. You can't make these things up. That is truth is stranger than fiction. This is a piece from Joe Lumen. That's L-U-E-H-M-A-N-N. And I think we've responded to some things of hers before. Well, nothing wrong with her putting things out. I, it's a, you know, I think it's appropriate to people for people to to air their views in the public square without being uh, censored, as many are are being censored. But this was a pro-abortion tweet. So, in light, even in spite of what it says, um, of course, Twitter wasn't or whoever. Actually, there's twenty five hundred likes for this. So, what gets liked? Is that tweets that get liked? Or I don't know how these things work, but in any event, so it's one of those social media. Here's what she says. Okay, fasten your seatbelts. I would rather get an abortion than have a brown child who ends up being adopted by white evangelicals. I would rather get an abortion than have a brown child who ends up being adopted by white evangelicals. And then she says, it's not a kindness to children of the global majority. Now, that would be people of color is what she's referring to. The global majority is not white. The global majority is non-white, POC, people of color. So it's not a kindness to give children of the global majority. Notice how she deals with the group. In all these cases, white evangelicals as a group, global majority as a group, to take those children and give them to people who will traumatize them with self and ancestral hatred. And then she closes, an abortion is an act of love. So if she got pregnant with a brown child, rather than run the risk of a white Christian adopting that child as an act of love, she would kill the child instead, so that that child would not be traumatized in the future by the self-centered Christians characterized by ancestral hatred. So where is all that coming from? Well, this is straight out of critical race theory. This is, or as they would characterize it now, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. It is these groups, white evangelicals, against this other group, 
the global majority of people of color, and they are out there to hate them and traumatize them. And the best way to save a child from that is to take the child's life through abortion. This is her point of view. 2,503 likes. Now, there's another comment underneath that, and I think it's hers. It has her name on it. Mentions of abortion and adoption. This is like regarding mentions of abortion and adoption, because some will say adoption's a great option to an abortion. Here she's arguing against that, because who's going to adopt it? These awful white Christian people who will traumatize the child with hatred are going to adopt it. She says, please understand, this is why adoption is further not an option for me. Adoption is not a solution to abortion, period, for the reason she puts up there. And then she writes, white and Christian supremacy kill people of the global majority. They kill LGBTQ plus people. They kill religious minorities. Why would I give a brown child to such a person? Now, this is where my own copy, since it's a screen, it's a printout of a screenshot, cuts off. I don't see the rest of this. But you see where she's going with this. What, what kind of mentality is this? That it's better to kill a baby than to give them, that child, to white evangelicals, Christians, and then because we're the people who kill LGBT people. We kill religious minorities. Just as a point of information, <clears throat> there is warfare and killing and genocide all over the globe. The majority is people of color on the globe, if you count Asians as well, which they do because they're not white, I guess. And, and, and well, then who is doing all of this violence all over the globe? It certainly isn't white people. White people are concentrated in smaller areas. Okay, who is doing all this violence? In Africa, all of the violence is black on black violence. There's not a bunch of white people out there. You might have some exceptions in southern South South um, South Africa, uh, but but they were exceptions to the rule. And the rule is that millions have been slaughtered as a result of tribal warfare. The, uh, you know, I mean, it's, this has been going on for decades there. Millions and millions have been slaughtered through tribal warfare, and many of them slaughtered with a, a machete. So that's not white people killing. Where are the white people killing LGBTQ people? Where is she getting this information? This is the kind of thing that gets taught in your basic university that some of you are sending your kids to. And by the way, you don't count on whatever Christian university you have in mind as not doing the same thing in some fashion, in some measure, because they're just not—it's almost impossible to find Christian universities that are not influenced by this. All right, there's a few, but not many. Okay, not many true blues anymore. What I've recommended earlier this year, 
about sending your kid to a Christian school is just forget about thinking of it like a Christian school that is going to protect your child by having the right views of the authority of the Bible and the person of Jesus and evangelism and and uh, and the whole uh, issue of sexuality, issue of homosexuality and um, um, you know critical race theory, all of these things that are on the list for me as watch out for these things, you're not going to find one anymore. Master's college. Okay. Maybe, uh, you know, Cal Baptist in, uh, in Riverside, for example, but then there's other, there's a few others, but they're hard. They're of all the Christian schools. It's hard to find any, not take it with us. That's why I said, don't send your kid to a thinking you're going to send them to a Christian school think that you're going to send them, when you send them to a Christian school, keep in mind you're sending them to a secularized school that has a lot of Christians that go to it. That's the best way to think of it. Anyway, so like Tim said, you can't make this thing up. These, truth is stranger than fiction. And when I read this, it it turned my stomach. But this is what we're up against. This is the way people think. Abortion is an act of love, quote, unquote. Okay, enough of that. Let's take a break and see your calls here in just a few moments on Stand to Reason. Have you seen our brand new website? Stop by str.org and enjoy a fresh, clean layout with all the same great content. The new Stand to Reason website was designed with you in mind. It has an easier-than-ever navigation and a crisp, simple layout so you can find all the sound analysis and careful commentary that you've come to expect from us. Browse new features that make finding your favorite resources easier than ever. As always, it's our goal to equip you, our fellow Christians, with the confidence, clear thinking, and courage you need for every encounter you have as a Christian ambassador. Our new website is just one way we're fulfilling that goal, allowing you to access the resources you need in a new and improved way. So visit str.org and keep coming back to discover new podcasts, articles, and videos each and every day. Did you know Stand to Reason has a YouTube channel? We release a new video each Monday on the topics you care about. Through short, engaging videos, our speakers train you on tactics, offer apologetics tips, answer common theology questions, and address big issues in the world today. Join tens of thousands of other subscribers so you can stay up to date when we release a new video. Just go to youtube.com and search STR videos, all one word, and hit the subscribe button. That's STR videos. Take advantage of this free resource to help you stay informed, encouraged, and equipped as you share your worldview with others. Greg Kokel giving you a piece of my mind today, taking your calls, and my number, I used to have this up here somewhere. Where is it? Here it is. Got it. 855-243-9975. That's 855-243-9975. And uh, you can call Tuesdays from... Four until six uh, Pacific time, and you could chat with me as many have done here. Let's go to our first caller, and I think uh, this is somebody I know. Is this Mr. Tim Zub from uh, Toronto? 
Yes, it is, Greg. Mr. Zuck. Talk to you again. Nice to talk to you, too. Um, I'm trying to recall when I was at your home, but I think it was, I always want to say like five years ago or 10 years ago. Those are my normal time frames, but it could have been eight years ago or 13 years ago. Who knows? We have to go to the measuring stick, which is my children, and they were pretty small. Oh, yeah. Occasionally, I've gotten a picture of you in a fairly hefty northern pike. Um, So I don't know if you've done any fishing yet this year. Uh, no luck yet. No luck yet, huh? Okay. <laughs> Sounds no, like you've been uh, out wetting a line, but no, but no, nothing. Got out once, yeah. yeah. Okay. All righty. Well, good to talk to you again, Tim. What's on your mind? Well, it's our it's the balance, you know, our kingdom mindedness and the joy of the Lord, and then you know, as you know, I don't want to get into the politics, but we've been kicked in the head here in Canada. Yes. For two years now, and it's yeah. uh, and I'm. And 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 I'm real, you know. We and I'm a pretty well balanced person, and yeah. I'm. It's really debilitating uh, about you know your your regular day to day stuff, like because like you know you you don't know. You, I can read the tea leaves of the future kicks in the head that are going to come from yeah. government and everywhere. And, and and everywhere I look, it's like that. Even from work, I mean, I've had further incidences from work, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and it just does. It's, it's unending, and and I find myself demotivated to even do some of the things, you know, like working on my workshop, the stuff around the house, the things that give you, that used to give us great right. joy, just, and, and then you feel guilty about that because that's not kingdom work. That's mm-hmm. just your, you know, your, your daily life busy work. And, uh, and I'm, ba- I'm bouncing between feeling guilty about not doing enough kingdom stuff and another, you know, and it's just, it's really bizarre. And now I have a whole new appreciation when I reread the scriptures because most of Christian history is, Times much worse than I'm living right now. Yes, uh-huh. and I, and and I never had an appreciation how how bad it is with the you know with the things that we have, and I um, need some perspective on how to keep my eyes focused. You know, yeah. Um, well, I'm pausing here, Tim, because when I saw your question earlier, you might have even heard me when you were talking to Amy on the phone before the show. You called right in, and I said I should ask Tim this question, not have him ask me this question. And because um, I am struggling with the exact same thing that you just described, okay? And I'll let you know how I deal with it. Um, but I, I don't, I can't say that I'm dealing with it effectively. Um, and we read in the text, it says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. We look at the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, you know, oh, and I look at my own life in the midst of the struggles that I have, and I I have a a range of things that are challenging me in my life right now, and um, both privately and publicly, okay? Publicly, obviously, the same thing you're facing, um, the same kind of thing. Your circumstances, Tim, in Toronto, in Canada, are more extreme. Okay, um, no question there. I mean, Tim Barnett is down the road from you somewhere, and you know he's. We've watched him kind of struggle with these challenges as well. Uh, but nevertheless, that external stuff. I, I, my wife drove me back from the airport yesterday, and I was just telling her how difficult it is for me when I look all around me at the culture, and I look what is happening to the culture. When I look at the things that I deem valuable in our country, and I, I see how those things are being corrupted and taken away. When I was on the plane yesterday, 
Uh, I worked for a while writing on the book, and then I said, i got to have a break here. I'm just going to watch a movie. And I knew what I was going to watch because I saw it uh, on the list last time around. And it was uh, National Velvet. I don't know if you're familiar with this movie, Mickey Rooney and Elizabeth Taylor, when she's like 12 or 13 years old. Uh, but it was a, it was fabulous to watch because it took me back to a different era that didn't have this kind of ugliness associated with it. And, and Taylor was this effervescent girl. And it was, for me, in those moments, I, I, I was deeply moved by the movie, and it was I'd seen it before, but it just kind of took me out of the present moment. But the fact is, we have to live in the present moment. So that was just a momentary departure. The question is, how can will you and I and other Christians draw from the strength of the Lord when we're in the midst of very trying circumstances. And some people have trying circumstances in their private life as well as their public life. And this is where I find myself to some degree, but I don't think I'm different. Most people have challenges in both areas of some sort. And sometimes it just feels overwhelming. It does not feel joyful. Okay? And even in my time with the Lord today, driving out to to the studio and even, you know, lying awake early in the morning, praying, anguishing over a number of things that are going on, um, and pleading with God for for an answer to the, my requests in certain areas, okay, and not seeing them, realizing that what I have to do is to endure, probably, through the circumstances in a godly way, even if I don't uh, don't get the, the relief that I'm praying for, okay? And trusting that God is going to do something better through the process of me enduring than Him giving me relief in certain things, all right? Now, you've been around long enough to understand that point. But it does—the other part of me wants to say, okay, I get it, but where? what about, like, helping me with my attitude and, on a subjective basis, feeling really good about that or joyful about that, to use your term in the biblical term? And that is very difficult for me to lay hold of. At this stage in my life, there are other stages where it was easier, but— it just sometimes when the, it seems like the, the floodgates break, um, what I have to hold on to is not my feeling of contentment or joy, which are biblical norms, you know, being content in all things. Paul said, I've learned the secret of being content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The joy of the Lord is my strength. It's a fruit of the Spirit. But laying hold of that, I think, is a challenge in certain times. And I know there are people listening, Tim, who are going through much more difficult things than you and I are going through, and they're wondering, where's the joy? And um, I, I, I don't know how that works. Uh, sometimes it's there, and sometimes it isn't. It's maybe a function of my own immaturity. I know what Scripture tells us to do. Consider it joy when you encounter various trials. James well, James starts his book that way, his letter. Consider it joy. In other words, count it as joy. Uh, 
okay, um, that doesn't feel too good to count it as joy. Jesus said in Matthew 5, when you are persecuted, rejoice. There's another place. So I think sometimes these are things that we lay hold of by an act of will. And then as we discipline ourselves to do this, then our, our, um, the subjective side follows along. I don't know if that makes any sense. I think a lot of times we wait for this to happen instead of, what am I doing? I'm saying, God, thank you for that flat tire. It still was a pain in the butt. <laughs> but thank you for that flat tire. That was a good thing. Because if you heard the early commentary, that's what alerted yep. me to the problem in the tires, all of them. And I got them all replaced, and now we're safe when we were really dangerous and I didn't know it. Um, uh, God, you, you asked me to consider it joy. Various trials. I'm in trial. I'm not feeling joy. What do I have to do? I have to consider it joy. I have to count it. Okay, God is going to work out something good in this because he has his hand in everything, and there's nothing that passes into my life that hasn't passed through his hand first. So I guess what I would say, Tim, is I completely identify. I don't just understand. I identify. I feel what you're feeling, and I'm, that is the lack of joy in the hardship, and I, and, I, I feel, and I experience the same frustration because this isn't what it's supposed to be like. I don't know what to do about that, other than try to be obedient to God and and be virtuous in the midst of the trials in a way that's appropriate to the circumstances I'm facing, whether it's professional or private, to be virtuous in that circumstance, to do the right thing before God, and then trust that He is going to then take care of it if I do the right thing. And sometimes I'm going to feel good about that, and sometimes I'm not going to feel good about that. I got teenage kids. Right, and yeah. you're probably past that stage. I don't know. I can't remember because your kids just were coming into it. Oh, okay, all right. So, um, well, that's you know, I didn't think this was required or necessary of adolescence, and I know some families who have escaped it. But characteristically, um, when kids get about thirteen or fourteen, especially if they're girls, they just go off their rocker. Okay, yeah, that's where I am now. <laughs> and it's like, what you know? Who, who are you and what did you do with my daughter kind of thing? And th for me, the kind of dad I am, that's really hard emotionally, really, really hard. And so when I face the, I guess for lack of a better word, rejection from my daughters in different kinds of ways, because this is the stage they're in, they don't want anything to do with Papa, you know, it's mom's the whole game. And, um, and so this is very hard for me. I do not feel joyful. But what I do is I take it to the Lord, and I take the anguish in my heart to the Lord, and I pour it out to Him. Now, sometimes I pour it out to other people as well, close friends, which is also good to have. But nevertheless, you know, taking it to the Lord and letting Him be the one who receives the anguish in our hearts, you know, about these things we're facing, and then asking Him to help us to have the kind of joy that is appropriate for being a Christian who trusts so, in Christ. The one thing that I do that does work, that's keeping me through a lot of things, is that, uh, you know, when I stand before God, I'm going to have failed at a million things. But yes, the one right. thing I really want to have to 
be able to say is that I was the most grateful person. You know, when I would be one of the top most grateful people standing oh. for God, because I every day I just you know all the things I am blessed. I have so many things that I'm blessed. It's just overwhelming. Yeah, and I really do focus on those things and I verbalize them and I oh, well, and I really work on my children with that because I they, I mean they, you know how children can gripe about so much when they have everything, and I I just drill that into them. This is you to be grateful. Better. You need to be grateful for yeah, what you have. Yeah. If, if you, if we, you know, we're not, we may not be the best stewards of everything God's given us, but we better darn well be grateful. Yeah. You know, Tim, that's just, that's a great lesson to teach them. I remember uh, many years ago when our kids were young, my wife got this book that was written by like teacher of the year in America kind of thing. And it was these 50 rules that he taught all his students. And he, one of them was that whenever I hand give anybody anything, they have to say thank you immediately for it. And if they don't say thank you, I take it away. And you don't get it. And so um, like a lot of things, this is meant to be a habit that you develop. But when you develop the habit, then it becomes actually something you, enjoy, you 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 value for its own sake, and that's what produces gratitude. And in, in that is making people express thanks for things. It develops the attitude of gratitude in their heart, and uh, so that's why I applaud you for doing that with your kids to making sure that they are thankful. They are thankful for all these things, especially in this generation, which is it's a generation of ingrates. And uh, I don't want my kids to grow up like that. I see too much of it in them. And I wish I had started sooner and been more consistent with that thing. So I applaud you for doing that. And I want I want to do the same thing if I have a hard time starting in my prayer time because I'm just anguished, upset, you know, or frustrated before God with the way things are going in my life um, that I'm concerned about and I've been praying about. Um I, if I start with the things that I am thankful for, that that gets the ball rolling. And a lot of times I'm thankful. I just say, God, thank you for my F-150. I'm driving my truck, you know. I love it. It's clean. It runs well. And my daughters and my wife call it the bubble because they get in it and they feel completely enveloped in safety because it's a big truck. Not like her little 2004 Honda uh, uh, Honda with the SUV, the pilot, or whatever it is. And so, but I'm thankful for that. Now, that's, well, that's just a car or a truck, whatever. Well, it's a place to start. There's all kinds of things that like that, that we have. It's just to get rolling. And I look around me, and I look at, you know, where I live and the people I know and the work I get to do. And so once it, once I get rolling on giving thanks for these things, it kind of oils the machinery making my attitude right before God. So that recommendation that you offered is really a, a valuable one. But sometimes it's just, I mean, I, I wish I could say I know the secret to this, but I don't. And um, it is something the Scripture talks about, but there are lots of things the Scripture talks about that it is a challenge of our lifetime to learn how to do and unlock and experience. It's part of our spiritual growth. I've been a Christian 48 years. I still don't know how prayer works. I just know the first rule of prayer, and the first rule of prayer is to pray. That's the first rule. 
And that's why we just, how does it work? What's the, what's the calculus of prayer? How much do I pray and other people? And how much does it add up to get something done? I have no idea. But I know I'm supposed to pray. Be devoted to it with an attitude of thanksgiving is what Paul writes in Colossians. So I want to be devoted to prayer and, uh, and pray even when I feel feeble. But this is where the grace of God's going to have to come in on my behalf because I can't do it myself. I wish I had a better report to give you, Tim. Uh, it's just good to even talk to you. Yeah. It's been too long, actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't get up to Toronto too often, you know. Tim does the work up there. But uh, anyway, uh, if maybe, maybe what I'm thinking about people who are listening too, Tim, and maybe this doesn't, and I've said this before, but maybe what I have to say doesn't make them feel better, but it makes them feel better about feeling bad, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I, I think the Christian life is a struggle. And uh, I spent a lot of time in First Peter, because First Peter, like a number of books, was written to suffering Christians. So was Hebrews. So was, uh, so was First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, and uh, so was Philippians. So uh, so was Ephesians. Well, Ephesians was written by Paul in, in jail, and, and also Philippians and Colossians. You know, so that is a theme that is very prominent in Scripture, and we we actually don't talk about it enough, so that people don't feel alienated somehow or unchristian when they go through really hard times. That is the norm. It is not the exception. If I read those books correctly, most of those books are written to suffering Christians. Hebrews, First um, uh, Peter, like I said, and uh, Thessalonians. Um, so both of them, and, and a number of others. So it's just it's it's uh, it's meant. I think sometimes we, it's harder for us because we have a wrong expectation. Of what to exp- of what to experience as a Christian, the things that are harder for me, though Tim, are when uh, when it seems that Scripture gives certain directives or makes certain promises that I cannot get to work in my life, and that's one of them that you brought up: the joy of the Lord, fruit of the Spirit, source of our strength. Okay, I need more of that. How do we get it? I just keep pressing forward persevering. Okay, buddy? Yeah, thank you very much, Greg. Hey, it's good talking to you, Tim. God keep you, brother. Okay, hope to see you soon. All right, bye-bye now. That's hard, friends. I wish I I, I gave you a rosier picture, but I got to be straightforward with you. I just got to be straightforward with you on these things. Well, now let's just uh, look at my timing here. I want to to, um, shift to another uh, actually, let you know about a new thing that we're doing, and we haven't got a clever name for this, so we're just calling calling it "Call in and record." <laughs> Amy's she's she's chuckling in grief here. We're trying to think of a name, but here's the deal: you can, if you can't call in and wait, like Corey's doing right now, and Philip's doing right now, um, and Tim was doing, you can call in and leave a, a message. If you call to the right place, all right, don't call our office. That won't help, and it'll drive our people crazy. Go to our website, to our homepage, str.org, 
and under the drop-down, find podcasts, and go to live broadcasts. And right there at live broadcast, you will see a panel that will allow you to record your own question. So we are building up um, a backlog of these questions that people actually call in and record, and then I can respond to on the air. And I, you know, I'm, I'm taking some time off coming up. And so in order to fill in for the time I'll be away, well, we can do a whole show of call-ins like that. It'd be great to have that many people call in. And so very easy to go to. Go to our homepage, str.org, drop down on podcasts and see live broadcasts, go there, and then you'll see on the right-hand side of of the page, you'll see an explanation of uh, how this works, and then push the button and start recording. It's that simple. Amy wants to tell me something. Oh, that's good. Okay, Amy says, it's especially good for people who live in another country where you're paying the big bucks for the phone call. Okay, so, uh, and you're waiting. We try to give preference to those who are um, on another continent because we know uh, how difficult it is. But uh, in any event, that's a great suggestion. So, <clears throat> excuse me, let's uh, let's hear from Allie Higgison. This is our first, uh, our, our um our launch of this uh, this new um, capability here. Let's hear what Allie Higgison has to say. We're working on it. Hey, Greg. My name is Allie, and my question is this. Based off of passages such as Matthew 10, 23 and Mark 9, 1, did Jesus cause his disciples to believe that his second return would be during their lifetime? And if the answer is yes, then what does this mean for us today? Yeah, that's a great question. I get asked that uh, and nice and clear. I like the way that works. Okay, uh, I'm going to Matthew 10, 30, uh, 10 uh, 23 to look this up. And uh, I think this has been an awkward uh, kind of issue, because there are a number of verses that suggest this. Now, I think the Matthew passage uh, might have a a fairly straightforward response. Matthew 10, 23. I'm slow on turning my pages here. I think I know what that is. Okay. Uh, No, it's a different one. Um, and he's talking here, this is Olivet Discourse, actually, I think, in Matthew, no, Matthew 24 is, but it's similar information. It says, you will be, uh, brother will betray brother to death, and father, child, and children rise up against parents, and, and th- they will be put to death. Oh, I know this passage. He's giving warning to the disciples about going out on a first missionary journey, and there's short-term missions, and he's saying, this is what's ahead of you. And it seems like he's giving, in this section, longer-term perspective. Um, And uh, you will be hated by all because of my name, but it's the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now, that's the first reference, and I'll tell you what I have in my Bible, and I've mentioned this in the past, is I have in pencil this question mark. Because I'm not entirely sure what that's referring to. Now, Jesus spoke enigmatically. That means uh, in in mysterious fashions, okay? And sometimes when we see Jesus 
speaking, the disciples don't understand, and it's it could mean a couple of different things. Now, when it says, until the Son of Man comes, we read that 2,000 years later as the second coming. All right? Maybe that isn't what he was referring to. Um, maybe he's referring to the, the culmination of his—I mean, he was the Son of Man, and he actually was right there. So, in one sense, he had already arrived, correct? Uh, they don't they don't know about I'm trying to think I don't they don't know much they're not in Matthew 10 about his second coming okay they don't know about his death they don't even understand that whole thing and after his death it, the Jesus has to meet with them explain to them Rodu Emmaus remember that so they're not thinking in terms of two comings now it could be Jesus is referring to that but I'm not sure now certainly you know, going through the cities of Israel is physically possible within the time span of 2,000 years. Jesus hasn't come again. Maybe this was referring to his culmination of his first coming, that is, his death and resurrection. I don't know. That's why I have a question mark there. Let's go to Mark 9 and see what that says. Sometimes he's referring, by the way, when he says, you will uh, not see death until when, before you see the, the glory of the Lord, my glory and my coming, something like that. And the next verse talks about the transfiguration. And so maybe that's what he has in mind there. All right. Here is a math, a mather, Mark 9 and verse 1, the other verse in question. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. Next verse. Now remember, there's no verse marks. Next word. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before him before them, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and were talking with Jesus. Now, in this particular passage, this to me is very different than the earlier one in Matthew 10. In this particular passage, it seems obvious because of the positioning of the lines that when Jesus says that some of you will not taste death, some of you standing here who are with me, so he was presumably talking to a larger crowd. Mark 9, actually, no, this is, this is the disciples. They're in Caesarea Philippi. Um, and Jesus is speaking. Mark is kind of collection things. It's not always in chronological order. It's moving quickly through things. But in any event, speaking to them would be the, the apostolic band that was with him. And then six days later, meaning Jesus' appearance in glory, the kingdom of God with power, was what happened six days later in the transfiguration. To me, that's pretty obvious in the context of that verse 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, etc., were, were fulfillments of what Jesus had promised in Mark chapter 9, verse 1. 
But it does raise other questions. I mean, I think this verse is dealt with, but the Matthew 1 is still a question. And there is also passages in in um, in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, that seem to imply that this particular, well, he says that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And there are different ways of understanding that. And like I said, Jesus spoke enigmatically. There were a number of things that he said that we're still scratching our head about 2,000 years later. And there are different ideas about what he had in mind. Um, I don't countenance the idea that he meant to communicate that the second coming was going to happen in their lifetimes, and it didn't happen, because that would mean he was wrong. He gave a false prophecy, okay? But I have reasons that are independent, like the resurrection, for example, that Jesus was who he claimed to be, as Paul pointed out in Romans chapter 1, first few verses, that he was declared with power to be the Son of God through the resurrection. So the resurrection demonstrated his authority to speak for God as the Son of God, as God himself actually is what that means, and a validation of his messianic office. So now I have good reason to believe him speaking the truth when I see things that look odd that don't seem like they add up, I'm figuring that I'm the one who's misunderstanding it, not Jesus got it wrong. It's the best I can do, and I thank you, Allie, for that great question, and we've launched our new call-in question thing. Go to our website, drop down podcast, go to live broadcasts, and there you can do it yourself. All right, that's it for this show, this hour. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye.